This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. All right, so here's a question for you, Joe. Why would, why would you build machines that learn and think like people? Why would you have that goal, and why is that a, maybe a dumb goal? I think that it seems like the, the two things that people talk about when they talk about this, this topic of, you know, building machines that learn and think like people is, number one, perhaps, you know, a model of machine learning or artificial intelligence could help you better understand the brain. So help you better understand neuroscience and cognition. Yeah. You could use a model, uh, a neural, you know, uh, neurally related model, whether it be inspired by neuroscience to better understand the brain. And then the other would be, might be a useful guidepost in uh, developing smarter machines. So the idea is that if your goal is to build really smart machines, then, you know, taking the smartest thing around that we know about, which is the human brain, at least that's what we're telling ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looking at that as, as a reference point could be useful. Yeah. And I mean, how much of it do you think might be even some, momentum too it's it's like the first the goal since people have been trying to make any sort of artificial intelligence has has been to make science fiction robots that do what we tell them to do and uh, (laughs) the first i mean you know it's like metropolis remember that old movie oh yeah totally all of that stuff the whole goal is to create someone that can serve us i think from the popular imagination the goal of artificial intelligence Every movie, like Haley Joel Osment in that movie AI, every goal seems to be to just make something that's a substitute person, and then it always moves on into the ethics of what should we do with this person? Right. Or what you know? What is it ethically wrong to you know destroy something that has an intelligence like us or something like that? Yeah. No. Totally. And I think that for me, why is that like not the right way to go, or why is that not even the right question? Well, what comes to my mind is like, okay, why are you trying to build someone, uh, build a machine that, that is just another person? Like, we have lots of people already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And people are good at what people are good at. That's right. So if you want to help people be better at stuff, does well, it Well, one reason, any, you know, here's one reason I could think of that sort of springs up, which is you could have a person that could interface with machines better. So in other words... So like you R2, could, like C-3PO kind of. Yeah, like C-3PO that would be like a human in most respects, like be adaptable. You could walk around the world just like Joe Hardy. And then when you sat down to play chess, you just can instantly access Deep Blue and you can win at chess immediately. And then when you need to do some kinds of specialized tasks, you can just interface with the computer much more easily than people do. Right. Our interface with the computer is just typing into a cell phone or talking to Alexa, right? If we could just something like learn a foreign language in two seconds, then there's an advantage. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a great point. It brings up several related topics that are, I think are super important to this. One is, of course, the role of the effector. Right? The effector. Yeah, so like hands and feet and... Yeah. Ability to do stuff in the world. I mean, I feel like that's where this topic, I think people just sort of automatically assume 
that you would build something that walks around like bipedal, you know, with hands and arms and legs and all that kind of stuff. And then that's what your robot is going to be. But yeah. And we've spent so much time and money trying to build robots that walk around like people. And it's like, I don't know, man. It seems yeah. like just the wrong – I think in general, the whole thing is really closely related to the other point, which is what are we good at? What are we not good at? And why don't we build stuff that is helps us with the stuff we're not good at rather than just trying to take over the stuff we already are good at? Yeah. I mean – I think also kind of in the popular imagination, there's this idea of artificial intelligence that comes past some particular point, like, the you know, the singularity or achieving consciousness or something like that. There's this idea that there's a sub-intelligent or subconscious, less than conscious artificial intelligence, and then there's the super-conscious one. And the super-conscious one is totally adaptable and can do anything, but the one that's less conscious is inflexible and i think right that's the way that people might consider an advancement in artificial artificial intelligence to be that you achieve this level of flexibility so that you're no longer just a single module that can help people out uh doing calculating or doing all the stuff that we suck at right no yeah that's super good i mean the, the points out the idea of goals so like the first goal you pointed out was right spot on and i think which is we want to build slaves. <laughs> yeah. Right. We want oh, to build slaves, robot slaves. Yeah. Not then, unconscious ones. I mean, we're going to start out with that, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, I'm not saying we want to build <laughs> slaves, but I'm saying when people talk about building robots, that's what they're talking about. And then the other yeah. one. Yeah. Whether it's a slave that, yeah. whether it's a slave that just builds cars or whether it's a slave that just does calculations or, Sort of. Or one that does whatever you tell it to do. I mean, I think that's the goal fundamentally when you talk about like the metropolis type robot. Yeah. Right? This is a, a bipedal mechanical person kind of that does all the stuff that you're supposed to do, but you don't want to do. So. <laughs> and can better <laughs> understand, you can better understand your wishes too. So. Right. Uh, you can list an arbitrary thing that you want. I want you to figure out how to get me to the moon or how to get me to Mars or just go to the grocery store and get me some wontons or something like that to figure out any arbitrary number of things that you desire and be able to get them to you. Right. Right. I mean, now, you know, that sounds a lot like Amazon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have drones, right? That's the drone thing, you know, which is actually in some ways a better effector than, than the bipedal, you know, thing that has to, it would take forever to walk from, Las Vegas or wherever the the, the closest uh, Amazon delivery center is to uh, to here with the drone <laughs> at a very potentially you know, overnight. Well, the bipedal thing is interesting, I think, because it's a it's a really flexible way of getting around, and it's evolution figured out this way of being able to navigate through lots of complex terrain, and it has to be sort of a naturally evolved process that. You know, takes a reasonable amount of energy or something like that, considers all the constraints of evolution. But of course, something like a drone, it moves faster, just like a car moves faster. And a car is a better way to get from one point to another. A wheel is a great way to get around. But evolution, for flexibility, a wheel's not perfect because you can't climb up a mountain very well with a wheel or there are, there are a lot of drawbacks to having a wheel. But for most tasks that you would want it for, you can design something better than bipedal mobility i'm sure 
No, absolutely. No, for sure. And I, I think the, the, the other point there is that this kind of speaks to the thing about the, the Hyperloop and, you know, how we're just organizing our transportation more broadly is that the walking robot, uh, you know, works well in the world that we have right now. Like, right. Know, and so if we're thinking about, I think so much of when we think about this stuff, it's like we're just trying to tack on whatever it is to the existing framework and infrastructure. And sure, yeah, okay, then that's how you get, like, self-driving cars, which are just so stupid. <laughs> so dumb, right? Like, I mean, I get it, right? I get it. it. It is the way to move forward because you can do it politically, whereas you can't do the things you should do politically, which is, like, reorganize things to make more sense and how things, you know, how our transportation infrastructure is set up. Oh, like what? Well, I mean, for example, build trains underground, Dig a lot of holes. You know, this is what this is what Elon Musk wants to do. You know, yeah. The, what's the name of his company? The the Boring Company. The Boring Company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Boring Company. That's right. It makes perfect sense, right? I mean, I heard the criticism of of, of that uh, the other day. Uh, I think it was on Vox. Uh, you know, their Explain series, but they were talking about it, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, it's okay." Elon Musk reinvented the subway. Great. Totally valid criticism, I think. It is not, it's not really a new concept. But it, what is new about it is that we've abandoned that whole framework, essentially. Uh, we haven't been d- digging many holes for many, many decades, really. Cities yeah. that, are, that are putting in stuff, they're putting in like light rail, you know, which is, you know, not really, not, not as good. It would make much more sense to dig holes and, uh, and put lots and lots of fast, uh, Subways to move people, but also move stuff, right? Like, no reason why you can't move stuff through those holes uh, underground. Yeah. I mean, it's, re- I guess it's a real estate that is um, unexploited. Right. And, and think about pneumatic tubes, man. We don't do anything with pneumatic tubes anymore. Well, we used to do, uh, at a drive in bank, you could have a pneumatic tube that would, you would take your check and then send it to the teller. Exactly. Exactly. And like, when I, the, when I was at, uh, at Lumasi, we were at the uh, 140 New Montgomery building. That was the old AT&T building. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they had pneumatic tubes throughout the whole building. That was how they basically communicated. Instead of sending emails, they would send, like, little notes in these pneumatic tubes. Well, when you put it that way, actually, emails do seem like a better option. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I know, if, it's but... just, if it's purely communication, then pneumatic tubes, of course, don't make sense. Right, right. But you could send something bigger, like... You know that was heavier, like shoes or something. You know, just yeah, into the hyperloop, and it like, I yeah, it should be a basic service like um, electricity and gas and pneumatic tubes. <laughs> exactly right. That's, that's really what it is. That's what he's talking about, effectively, right? It's like, I guess it's the, it's the opposite. It's because it's a vacuum. You actually take all the air out of the tubes. So yeah, it's not really a pneumatic tube, but it is a tube, uh, and you move stuff through it. But that gets me to the, 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 the second goal. So the first goal, of course, is, is just, you know, machines that can basically do all the stuff that we don't want to do. All right. So that's, that's goal number one. Makes, mm-hmm. makes sense. I still don't think that walking, talking robots are the way to go. That's, that's like a whole conversation. But the second goal is, I think, what you hit on already, which is that you can upload your consciousness and live mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. But those two things really necessarily have to even be like very similar developments, right? I mean, they could be very different. Like, 
the, the, the uploading your consciousness, as soon as we start saying upload, right, I already start thinking about big servers. They don't even need like a body. Yeah. You know, I'm still, I, I think I used to be enchanted with that idea and I'm less enchanted after reading a lot of Derek Parfit, his stuff on, did you read the, his, his stuff on the teletransporter argument? No, no, no. Tell me about it. Well, okay, let me see if I can explain this in, a, in the right way. Um, okay, so Parfit, he wrote a pretty influential book on personhood and self in the 1980s. And one of his arguments that got picked up and really referenced a lot was the idea of a teletransporter and what that, what a thought experiment with a Star Trek teletransporter could tell you about what you considered your permanent self. So, Captain Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard is in the in the Enterprise, and they go in the teletransporter. Now, what happens when you go in the teletransporter? It destroys every single atom in your body, turns them into pure information, beams them down to another location, let's say another teletransporter, that gets that information and then reconstructs it again. Right. Okay, so functionally, you should be the same exact person. In other words, you walk into the machine, you know, whatever's on your mind, you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. And coming out of the machine, there is a person who is thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. Okay, so this is the main this is the main case. So far, most people have no problem with this. Okay, that's me that comes out the other end. Then he introduces a couple different cases, one of which is what he calls the branch line case. What happens if you, you instead of being destroyed when you get sent through, you just get scanned and then replicated on the other side? So where is your sense of self now? And the, the case that he uses is, okay, uh, you've got a new scanner. Instead of destroying you, sends you to the other side, reproduces you, and then the guy who's running the scanner says, oh, sorry about that, we actually meant to destroy you, but you're still alive. But one problem, you have a fatal heart condition that's going to kill you within five minutes. Oh, shit. <laughs> and this is a, it's a fun thought experiment to play off different versions of what if you get you know, scanned and sent to a thousand different places, which one is you? And the two lines of thought are, you know, that is me on the other side because it's everything that I could possibly care about in terms of continuing myself. Right. Every goal that I had, you know, I'll, I'll Skype with my wife later on in the day, and she'll never know the difference because functionally I'm identical. But for me, I get I get sort of stuck on that, and I I don't want to be killed and have another version of myself on the other side. <laughs> I, I that's that that is what the that is fundamentally what you're doing with the uh, the singularity upload story, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, you're fundamentally dying as a body. And you're continuing as, you know, a, a copy of your, and so, I think, yourself. yeah, and I think where this goes next probably is like, right, is like, okay, and then there's multiple of you, right? Because you can make multiple copies. No reason why you can't make multiple copies, right? Yeah. And I mean, you can do, you can have some software that stop, prevents multiple copies from being made or anything like that, but I feel like. You the, wouldn't, you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't. In the transfer from your, from your body to the computer, there's essentially no difference between you being scanned and appearing on the computer as a separate person 
and then being killed and you sort of being transferred. If you watch, you know, in a movie, somebody uploads themselves onto the computer, their consciousness, their sort of spark goes into the computer. That's not really what's happening. It's a copy and then it's physical death for your body. Right. It seems like in movies, it's usually too that somewhere the body is somehow hooked up. Yeah. To something and it's like still a there. Kind of deal. Yeah, you're always the body is always there, and you always end up going back into the body, and that's what people end up caring about is, is their physical body, right? Identity somehow is is really wrapped up in that. Um, yeah. Like how many parts or pieces of your body can you replace and all that kind of stuff. But, right, uh, and that's another argument that I mean, it's another version of this that you can get into is what if you replace a single neuron at a time um, with some sort of electronic circuit? Eventually, if you do it sort of slowly enough, you might be okay with the transition into your new electronic self. Right. I mean, I, I'm already like feeling a little bit like this myself. I mean, I've had parts of my body taken <laughs> progressively <laughs> over the past years, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it, actually. Uh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I had one of my uh, vertebrae, whatever that that uh, disc, vertebral disc, you know, mm -hmm place with a cadaver bone so that's like a part of like someone else a human being who was alive at one point now screwed into my uh my back i feel quite good about it honestly much much less pain <laughs> yeah well, but yeah i mean you can imagine how many of those can you do and still feel like yourself you know well and especially if it's if it's parts of your brain right we feel somehow that that's different you know i t i do feel like it's different <laughs> <laughs> That's my bias, I think. Yeah. Well, who's telling you that, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't it's know. your brain. But no, I mean, I don't know if it is different or not. I don't know if it is different or not. But I, I feel I feel like it is. Should we yeah. jump into the paper? And kind yeah. Of yeah. So, do you want to talk about the uh, why you would why you would or would not build machines that learn and think like people? Or do you want to move on to a different? No, I think we I think we hit that pretty well, and then I think maybe. We can yeah. start from like the perspective that they're taking yeah. in the paper and talk about their what they're trying to do there. So, as far as I understand it, one of the or, or certainly the main point of this paper is trying to figure out what human intelligence consists of and being able to extract that and and create machine learning systems that operate in a similar kind of way. Right, and I think that was definitely part of it, and I think the other part of it that I sort of extracted as being like a pivotal part of what they're trying to argue for is the idea that when we make these machine learning algorithms and we test them in like an academic setting, uh, in terms of like how good they are, we benchmark them, we benchmark them against, you know, different visual tests, you know, the Turing test, the visual Turing test, but we also benchmark Object them recognition tests, right? Right, right. We, 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 rec we benchmark them against how they play on video games, there was a nice mm -hmm. section about that. Yeah, and, and that's an that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to go oh, yeah. to at some point. I, I think that's super cool. And then you know the uh, and then their point is like, look, you know, you could do it that way. It's kind of not really fair because you know human beings come with all of this startup software. We come with uh, whether it become you know they repeatedly make the point that they're not trying to make a nature or nurture ar argument. Right, so they're, they're they're not saying that this is necessarily learned or necessarily genetic. They don't really care for the purposes of the argument. What they're saying is, you know, look at the time that you go into learning a new task, whatever it may be, you know a bunch of stuff, 
right? You have intuitive physics, you have mm-hmm. uh, a sense of what other people might do in the world based on your previous experiences and, you know, just intuition. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just not really fair to say that this, com- this computer algorithm has to learn all that stuff. And it's also not necessary. Like, why make the computer algorithm learn all that stuff from scratch when we can just as easily pro- – well, not, it's not necessarily easy to do right now. And that's, I guess, one of the arguments that some of the commentators make was that they're leaving out the fact that it's actually kind of hard to do this. But you can give the computer some intuitive physics, some intuition about others' psychology, some intuition about the structure of the world. You can build that in, basically. And so, and uh, some of this based off uh, some of this based off of developmental psychology too. So how understanding how kids learn and understanding how kids um, come to uh, represent causal structures. Right. Exactly. Um, What they're arguing for is it would make sense to give uh, computers the opportunity to build causal models, but also to give them some intuition to begin with, about what the causes of different different things in the world might be. Yeah, so I think one of the questions that this brings in is, is this something that is outside of the scope of any kind of current artificial neural network technology? So I'm just thinking, okay, so imagine just uh, an object recognition. So object recognition software is pretty good, and it can get, I don't know what the current number is, 90, 95, maybe more percent correct in terms of, say, natural images. Yep. So if, if you feed it enough, if you feed a program enough examples, it'll start being pretty good at categorizing images into um, different, having different labels for those categories. But right. there's always, there's always an example or two that you can give that says, aha, this program is actually pretty stupid because it can't recognize that this is a dangerous situation. Something really weird is going on here that a, that a human being would be able to understand immediately. A right, bit, exactly. A bit in the same sense that natural language processing doesn't, it doesn't work perfectly. For most things, Alexa or OK Google, What's the name of that? Is it just OK Google? The Google speech, speech recognition. For most stuff, it's pretty good, and it, under, it understands what you're saying. But when you start using language that it seems like another human being should quickly pick up on, it fails at it. So natural language recognition is good enough for most of the things, but definitely falls short of the way that human beings are doing it. Right. Well, I think that's... Uh, hits a, yeah, a number of points there because the first point there is that, right, that human, this is an area where human beings are much, much better than mm-hmm. machines currently, which is understanding natural language and making, you know, natural conversations. So you can have machines that can pass the Turing test in a language setting under like limited circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. But over an extended period, you can usually figure out that, you know, that you're talking to a machine and that it's making mistakes that a person should or wouldn't make. I, I think that's what these authors are are fascinated with and concerned with too, is what this tells us about how human intelligence works. That right. catching the mistakes, just like in all kinds of areas of cognitive psychology, seeing where you know fundamental mistakes are made can tell us about how the process works in general. 
and, yeah. and really shows us shows us what intelligence is. So certainly intelligence is not playing chess. We learned that intelligence seemed it seemed as though intelligence was being able to recognize patterns and play games like that because intelligent people seem to be better at playing chess. But it turns out that's a fairly specific kind of thing to do. It's, you know, and there are lots of examples where it seems like intelligent people should be able to manipulate numbers and remember lots of numbers, but computers can do that way easier than people, right? Right. And this is a more, I mean, this is, you know, it seems as though after after a long time of, of understanding how machines are not intelligent, we're definitely getting at a better understanding of the ways in which our intelligence is different than we thought it was. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that what I always come back to on the question of intelligence is that when we say intelligence, we automatically mean thinking like people. And I think that's why this article was successful in a way is because it reframes the question rather than how do we make intelligent machines, but how do we build machines that learn and think like people? And if if you can separate those two things out, I think it makes life a lot more clear, right? I mean, there's reasons to build machines that think and, and learn like people. And there's reasons to build machines that can help people do things, and they're not the same thing. They're hmm. not the same thing, right? They're, they're two distinct tracks that have overlap. There's a lot of overlap, no, no, no doubt about, like, learning about how people learn and using that and applying that to how to make better learning machines mm-hmm. is helpful in both directions. It helps you understand people, and it helps you understand machines, uh, and that's super useful in both directions. But you can do a lot of really cool stuff with learning algorithms that have nothing to do with how people think. And actually, uh, to your point, we'll, we're already so much better with machines doing a lot of tasks that are really important. I mean, I think you know, the self-driving car is a great example, right? Already, mm-hmm. really, probably, the best self-driving car is probably a better driver than the average driver, right? So already, machines are better drivers than people, right? And if you put them on the, on the road by themselves without people, they would be way better, way, way better. So, I think I am amazed every time I get on the road and drive and don't get killed, honestly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, I, I'm a little bit amazed that I don't kill someone every time I get behind the wheels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think about the way that, I think that, that that particular example pulls out several of the topics about how people think and then what what the distinction is, what, when you would want to build something that thinks like people and when you would th- want to build something that doesn't think like people. So self-driving cars don't think like people at all, at all. Very little like machine learning, quote-unquote, is really necessary for I mean, it, it, certainly there's a part of it that that's that's machine learning based, but a huge part of self-driving cars is just having a lot of sensors. So mm-hmm. if you think about the effectors and the input modules, that's where the big distinction is that makes self-driving cars better than people at driving because you don't have Absolutely. to have just you know a bipedal thing with two eyes, two arms and two legs. You have you can have a thousand eyes. And all looking at different parts of the spectrum too, not just in the you know our our visible spectrum, but like infrared, ultraviolet, you know. And you can also get uh, distance sensors that will give you accurate distance instead of um, an estimation. Right. 
exactly. And yeah, filtered through all of our really, really effective uh, heuristics. You don't uh, need that, to look, you don't need to switch attention when you're looking in the mirror. Right. So that's where I feel like I think we as human beings need to be a little bit humble about our intelligence <laughs> and recognize that we have some abilities that are pretty, pretty remarkable, but we're not the best at most things. There are animals or machines that are better at almost every task that you can imagine. Yeah. And so we tend to fixate on the, the tasks that human beings are uniquely good at. It, it always comes back to what are your goals. Mm-hmm. And I think when we think about what intelligence is, it, I feel like there's such a dichotomy between the way that a psychologist type people like to talk about intelligence. And this is where the chess thing is so funny mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. I mean, psychologists of the 1950s and 60s probably thought that chess was the most important thing cognitively that you could ever imagine like right because you have to you have to you know you have to know about life and strategy and act machiavellian and uh deception and all of that stuff exactly exactly and you know well now that we realize that oh actually it's pretty easy to teach the computer to beat us at that game uh you know we have to move on to something else but I, i think what 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 you realize and when you think about what humans are really good at therefore what intelligence is as we define it, because intelligence is exactly just thinking like people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is nothing, right. nothing, right. It's nothing else more than that. And, and, and fundamentally, someone who is more or less intelligent is very simply someone who is able to manipulate and manage the socioeconomic environment more effectively. That's, that's all it mm-hmm. is, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And then it, it, and tests of intelligence are just, they work because they ask you to, to tell me what I want to hear. And if you are good at telling me what I want to hear and I'm in charge, then you're going to get ahead. And so it's going to look like these intelligence tests are super effective. But the point that I was starting with this was the goals. What are the goals of intelligence? There seems like there are two, really, right? There's food production, and that's a big part of how humans have been able to dominate the world. Food and production. Food production and violence. So war and then defeating other animals okay yeah. so this is approaching into a jared diamond kind of or uh yeah noah yuval hariri is that his name the guy who wrote sapiens right 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 yes uh, sort of a look at maybe an evolutionary take on what intelligence is based on what it has gotten us more yeah i think it's even more just like when we talk about intelligence and we think about how humans are so intelligent, so often thinking about it from a point of pride, right? Like, mm-hmm. human, look, at, look at human beings. We've, we've dominated the planet. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. And then so you start, think about, well, what does that mean that we're, that we're in charge? So, like, what does that mean? Well, basically, that means that we've, through violence, captured most of the land and successfully managed to produce enough food for us to to not die and to, you know, uh, project ourselves into the future. And so if you think then about intelligence and what, what we're good at that other animals are not good at, it's going to be those two things. Cause that's, well, that's, that's let us... I, let's see if there's any counter example to that. There are certainly animals that are creatures, you know, multicellular organisms that are more successful than us in terms of propagating themselves. Insects, bacteria, Ants. So ants yep. are incredibly flexible. 
and in some cases manipulate food supplies, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think that's actually a really good example because in what ways are ants intelligent or not intelligent and or more or less intelligent than us? We talk about communication. Ants have tremendously sophisticated, mm-hmm. uh, complex communication uh, systems. Uh, but you would certainly never call an. I mean, if you're going to ascribe intelligence, it would be a group of ants, right? So exactly, you never call a single ant intelligent. Right, right, exactly. But we're happy to call single people intelligent. Right. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. So it is some. It's a fundamentally something individualistic intelligence in this way. At least we think of it that way. I suppose. That's what. Yeah, that's what we're calling it. That's what we're calling. It. Do you, want, do you want to talk about the uh, the video games? Oh, yeah. This is an interesting one. I think this is – maybe you want to introduce the concept of it or, you know, for if anyone doesn't know about this research or the kinds of advances that have been made. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I don't know all the ins and outs, but I can present it at a high level. I think the idea here is that there are all of these different tests that we're giving to machine learning, artificial intelligence systems – to basically benchmark them. Uh, we want to benchmark the performance of these machines against each other and see how we're progressing. And naturally, we kind of do that in the, in the context of things that people are good at uh, and give us some, somewhat of an intuition about how smart we think the computer is at this point for having done uh, succeeded at this task. We talked about a couple of them already. You know, the Turing test, can you, mm-hmm. can you fool a person into thinking that you're a person as a machine? Mm-hmm. Um, can you recognize objects in complex scenes? You know, things like that. And games, playing games, is one of the ones that people are excited about benchmarking machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence algorithms against, and uh, different ways to do that and to think about that. But it, it gives a sense of how, you know, of how flexible the machine can be in its thinking, how long it takes to learn the game, and, uh, and things like that. And so it gives you a useful benchmark. So obviously we talked about chess, where you know, uh, Deep Blue finally beat uh, the very best chess player in the world, uh, and, and that was a major benchmark. People pointed out that there was you know, some, some, some parts of chess that were made somewhat convenient, if you will, for a computer to, to perform well at. So for, if you think about it, uh, the, the board is, is two-dimensional. There's a, a very finite number of locations that, that the, the pieces can be placed on, and the pieces move in a very easily defined and prescribed fashion. So the rules are, are easy to set down in a few lines of code. And, and the conditions space. for winning are very clear, too. Correct. Exactly. And they're not, there's not like a lot of, yeah, there's not a lot of flexibility that are necessary to think about the conditions for winning or success in the game. That's all pretty, pretty well prescribed. And so the idea is that, well, some, let's look at some other games that maybe the computers are not as good at. So Go is one of the examples that I have not really played much enough to know why it's, it's harder than chess for. I am the, I'm the same way too. I think I, I understand a little bit about how it works, but I don't understand why it's so complex or so combinatorically expansive. Right. But for, yeah, exactly. For whatever reason, that's harder. And then, you know, the video games is something we know more about. <laughs> we could see yeah. more, more, uh, yeah, more, 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 video more, more to video games. Yeah. So the, it started to be that, that uh, now the machines are beating us at Atari. 
you know, that's kind of like the next level, right? Atari, like 2600, you know, or whatever. These, these, uh, video game systems from the eighties. And I think the cool thing about the, the recent advances in this or the, the way that computers are now able to play video games is that it doesn't mean that an algorithm given all the rules of the game can play faster than a human or beat a human. It's that for certain Atari games or I guess, you know, even Super Mario Brothers or, or some other games that all you need to do is give an input of the game and do a simple reinforcement. So know when the game state is better. You know, if you, if you're moving forward on a level and just let it play the game a whole bunch over and over again, it will screw up tons of time in a, in a row. But after playing enough, it eventually can figure out a whole bunch of different games without knowing anything about those games. And it can do it better than people. So, you know, it'll be stupid in the first couple of iterations, dumber than any human would be. But, you know, given enough training, it can get through Super Mario Brothers or Pole Position or other, other kinds of old games, certainly Atari games. Right. So it does it exactly. somewhat sort of autonomously or le there's less, um, there's less explicit programming about what the computer is supposed to be doing. It's that it, it actually figures out games without knowing anything about them. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the key, right? Because sure. I mean, every video game can beat you at itself because, right. because it, <laughs> you know, whenever you have, Except the rock, paper, the, the rock, paper, scissors video game is still not fully developed. <laughs> it's, still, it's the only one humans still have an advantage on. Yeah. We yeah. can win 50% um, of the time. <laughs> right, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, because the computer can just be programmed in such a way that the computer's, quote, unquote, agent, you know, yeah. defeats you uh, in some fashion. So that's, that's trivial, right? Uh, so the point is that given, I think it's interesting to think about what inputs are, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think it's easy to lose sight of that because it's it ends up being important, especially when you start talking about this topic of what does the computer know to start with and what does the computer have as input as it's learning? Because, to, you know, mm -hmm. basic, basic point is that, like, if, if you told the computer exactly what all the rules were and how, how all the pixels moved and everything, added up, then it would automatically beat you because it's already a computer and you're playing a computer game and by definition can defeat you. Yeah. Uh, because it doesn't have to have like reaction time. It doesn't have to yeah, take yeah. time to process things, to see things. It's just looking, it's just working on, the, it's working at the same level as the actual game, right? It's, a, uh -huh. it's, it's trivial to, to imagine that it would defeat you in that way. So, but then the question is like, what is it? giving what are we giving it and why is that what we're giving it and what is that telling us so in this case as i understand it so if you take the frostbite example mm. which is that game which is sounds like a little bit like frogger with uh, a few yeah I've, i have to i've never played frostbite before but i love the fact that it's it's a game that i don't know if anybody had ever heard of or remembered but all of a sudden now it's sort of a challenge to beat it because it has different it has different goals than computers are good at. Right, exactly. Do you remember from the paper what some of those... You know, I'm actually looking at it right now, and I... Okay, so 
I'll read the description of Frostbite. Um, In Frostbite, players control an agent, Frostbite Bailey, tasked with constructing an igloo within a time limit. The igloo is built piece by piece as the agent jumps on ice flows in water, and it it does look kind of like Frogger. The challenge is that the ice flows are in constant motion, moving either left or right, and ice flows only contribute to the construction of the igloo if they are visited in an active state, white rather than blue. The agent may also earn extra points by gathering fish while avoiding a number of fatal hazards, falling in the water, snow geese, polar bears, etc. Success in this game requires a temporally extended plan to ensure the agent can accomplish a sub-goal, such as reaching an ice flow, and then safely proceed to the next sub-goal. Ultimately, once all the pieces of the igloo are in place, the agent must proceed to the igloo and complete the level before time expires. So apparently, I guess what I am understanding about this is if it's a a straightforward game like Frogger, where you just have to avoid, you know, your short-term goal is aligned with your long-term goal. You don't have to kind of go forward and go back. And I think telescoping was the name that, um, has been given to the sort of long-term planning of different kinds of goals that you have to sort of think into the future and then complete a larger goal and then go back to your smaller goals. So this game, apparently, computers are terrible at. So right. in, in in this experiment, so here, I'll read, I'll read this a little bit too. Okay, so the computer was cared, compared to a professional gamer. The professional gamer got two hours of practice on a whole bunch of different Atari games, and most of them the computer did pretty well with. The computer was trained on 200 million frames from each of the games, which equates to approximately 924 hours of game time, or about 38 days, or about 500 times as much experience as the human received. And the bottom line here is that the computer achieved less than 10% of human-level performance during this. So one one huge difference between human ways of playing video games and and neural network plays ways of playing video games is that it takes a lot of iterations they have to they have to play it a lot of times before you real you really see improvements and then with games like this where you have these different kinds of goals you may never see human level performance it you know peaks around 10 percent and then just kind of stays there because it just it doesn't it's not getting the reinforcement to do uh look at bigger goals in the game yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, uh, because, right, several things here. One is we're talking about frames. So we're measuring, right, yeah. We're, we're, we're measuring the amount of experience in frames, which is, like, if you think about it, kind of a funky way to do it. Uh, frames, I think, what we usually say, like, 24 frames a second or something like that for a video game is pretty normal. The point is that every single pixel is represented perfectly in the computer's memory and it has exact access to that and when it moves yeah. it moves the the play it moves the the guy uh, what do we call this guy uh bailey, frostbite bailey frostbite bailey yeah yeah when it moves frostbite bailey it moves frostbite bailey with perfect fidelity mm-hmm. and no reaction time no right right uh slippage i mean remember right. those old 80s and 90s oh, yeah. video games that was the hardest part oh, yeah lining up yeah, yeah, physically lining up so that you stepped on the thing at the right time, you know, like yeah. that was the hard, by far the hardest part. Yeah. And so we're not even asking the computer to do that part, right? Which is, you know, it's just funny what we're asking the computer to do and not do in this world, right? Because in this world, the, the yeah, computer right. gets every single pixel on every single frame. 
and it can move the the guy, uh, uh, Frostbite Bailey, arbitrarily, essentially, yeah. you know, within the rules of the game. Right, because if you, could, if you could do this while you were playing, you could you wouldn't have to play through um, like Pitfall like 400 times and just barely miss the last jump, right? You would exactly. You'd always make that last jump. Right? Once you got it, you get it every time. Exactly, because you, you know you have to. You know already. You're, we already know. Like you have to get right up to the. So your ha- one pixel of your foot is over the line, and then yep. you jump. And you know what you have to it's do. So it's hard. Because that stupid joystick is like <laughs> so, like so much slop in that joystick, and then you have to be pixel perfect on your jump. Yeah, you know, Jackson and I are playing a game like that right now. This Star Wars Lego video game, but it's like not the new one. It's like the old one. You know, it's it's got a lot of those, a lot of those elements to it. But anyway, the, the computer is totally has no problem with that. That's easy. But we're not giving the computer anything about the goals of the game, and so. Which is kind of funny because it's like mm-hmm. the goals of a game like that are just sort of human goals, right? Which wouldn't necessarily be of concern to a machine, right? Unless we, unless we wanted them to be. So it's, it seems to me like in the context of this whole conversation, like odd that that's where we would draw the line, right? So no, no concern about the effector, no concern about the input. It's got perfect inputs and it's got perfect outputs, but the learning has to be somehow open loop outside of like anything about the goals which doesn't to me make any sense like well, yeah. it's easy to tell the machine what the goals are right like we already we already established that we could train a machine we don't even have to train it we could build the machine program it to just beat this game 100 percent every single time so the machines are already way better at this game than we are so it's like a weird weird thing that we decide that this is like this is the level that we're going to be challenging the computer to learn well yeah and i mean I care about what happens to um, Frostbite Bailey. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's like this—it's a story. It's a story in the game, right? I don't know. I've never played the game, so I can't say how much I—I I would be into what happens to him, or uh, the polar bears or the fish or that. But I mean, definitely, video game designers—you know—you have to put a lot of effort into the narrative that draws people into the game. Absolutely, the storyline. And I think about, you know, what makes people good at these games, and they talk about learning to learn, which is totally true. Uh-huh. But actually, it's a lot of it is just tropes. Uh-huh. Do you know what's supposed to happen in the storyline? And it's just like, oh, it's just like how they did it in this other game. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that you're learning to learn. It's like you're remembering a fact that it was like this in another game. Maybe they did it the same way in this game. So I think there's that idea of like transfer learning. I think that that kind of brings up the topic of transfer learning. So the idea is that maybe if you had a system that you let the, the machine play a bunch of other games, it could get something from that and and then basically be have some starting point that was, was helpful for them in learning this game. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the maybe it's the sort of theory building. And this is, I guess it's something that shows up in a number of different areas of, in the history of cognitive science, this distinction between sort of lots of specialized modules that do different things or one central module that kind of does everything in a flexible kind of way. Most neural networks are specialized. I mean, they're, they're intentionally specialized modules that can do one thing really well. So in that sense, they work by building up a number of examples rather than the way that people 
build up prototypes of things or centralize their, their the way that they understand a particular concept. Right? You know this so the the exemplar versus prototype ideas in cognitive psychology? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I mean I you know when we consider any kind of concept when we think about I guess when we think about say a polar bear, just because polar bear is the first thing that sprang to my mind, right? When we think about a polar bear, our idea of it is built up from a number of different examples of it, and we maybe have a central prototype of that polar bear that's the best example of it that looks a particular way. In, in um, neural networks that are playing video games, they're building up their expertise from lots of examples of games that didn't work or games that did work. So when they're getting feedback that something does work or when it doesn't work. No, I mean, I, 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 I think I, I think I, I'm, I have an idea. I totally have an idea in there somewhere. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm not expressing that exactly. Right. I, I, I think I have a sense of where you're going with this, which is I had a similar thought when I was contemplating this, which is there is this idea of like equipotential, right? So that. Yeah. That's substance what I, yeah. In the brain that, that, basically can do everything and there's a where a world in which uh, when we're kind of it's all this whole effort and, and endeavor really you know of like seeing like what of benchmarking this whole endeavor of benchmarking in this way which is fundamentally an academic exercise mm-hmm. right because we're not talking about building something that's useful here that's a separate topic we've touched upon that a little bit already and it's i think very very interesting question in some ways ultimately it's what always drives everything forward so there's plenty of people going to be talking about it but in the in the context of benchmarking this is an element of of it which is it's what what is super impressive to us like right why why do we find it impressive that the video game that the the machine learning algorithm can play this video game why is that impressive it has something to do with flexibility of thinking, right? So the idea that you take this system that was not built to play the video game, but can somehow learn the context and the the goals of the game and be flexible in its development and learning to then become able to learn to, to play the game. Yeah. And so we're somehow impressed by the fact that this, this equipotential system, the system that's, that's generic in its nature can can somehow learn to play this game, which is it was never built to play. I think that's the part that that seems impressive about it. Sort of like uh, build a robot to do one particular task, but then it can also generalize and and it can do something else that you didn't necessarily explicitly program it to do. Right. Exactly. And and I guess then the hope is that from a practical perspective is that oh well eventually this thing is doing all kinds of stuff you never even expected it to do and and weren't even trying to do when you started out. And then all of these unintended positive consequences come from that. That's the hope, right? And it saves you work because you don't have to, you can finally get a program that'll do things that you didn't have to explicitly tell it to do, that it can figure out these things instead of having explicit algorithms to describe exactly what it is that you need done. It'll extrapolate a bit. Right, exactly. And I think then that's uh, a question as to whether or not that's something we really want to be doing. Yeah. Uh, because That is a good question. Should we should we want that? Right. We clearly do. And I think it's important to recognize that we are that is what we are trying to do. 
in this type of effort, right? We're trying to make something that is learning stuff that it wasn't built to learn. That's what we find impressive. And, and is that something we want? What kind of, I mean, what kind of usefulness would that have in, in everyday life besides uh, being able to target new products towards you? <laughs> besides, besides, well, besides finding, yeah. I feel like, you know, that's one, that's certainly one application, right? Yeah. Well, how, how are you thinking about it in that, in that way? Just in terms of the way that, like machine learning is used to uh, to sell ads today, or are you thinking about some other? I'm thinking. Okay, so currently, you know, the kind of flexibility or sort of extrapolation that you get in things like this, maybe in terms of what Netflix may suggest for you, right? Like a recommendation. Yeah, recommendation. What Netflix recommends, what kinds of products are recommended, what sorts of ads you get on Google. But I guess I'm thinking. Okay, so. Let's just forget about um, any limitations. What What is it that you would want if you could do anything? So, you know, what if you could have a, a robot that could extrapolate anything you wanted? What What kinds of things would you want it to do? Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, mean, do I, we want to be, I mean, do we want to be we want robots that will, you know, be able to peel our grapes for us? And then also, I, I'm trying to think of what the most luxurious lifestyle that we could, <laughs> that we could have that we would you know, it would be supported by robots that would um, cater to our every whim because yeah, that's, that's kind of what it feels like right absolutely and one of the things that comes out of that a lot of uh, uh, very often when you start going down this line of reasoning which is you want to build a machine that's flexible in its thinking and can learn the goals of a situation in a, you know, without knowing all of the previous context, mm-hmm. is that a lot of this stuff becomes social. Hmm. It's about other people, knowing other people's minds hmm. and understanding what they would want or what they would expect or what they're about to do. So when we look at the mistakes that machines make and we think, aha, so the machines are so stupid, mm-hmm. a lot of times that's the kind of thing we're looking at. It's like, is it, you know, is this person angry or sad? You know, like, what's this person doing in this situation? Like a woman riding a horse on a dirt road is, you know, this uh, picture, that's how it was labeled yeah, from yeah. figure six, which is like a person being dragged by a horse. Right. Know, or an airplane is parked right. on the tarmac. It completely misses, completely misses the point of what that image is representing or the, the emotional content of something like that that you could use to talk to other people about it, right? Right, exactly. So I think part of what you are going to want to be doing is figuring out what other people are wanting or about to do or are likely to do in the future. Well, hey, I mean, we're moving into philosophy here because, you know, what would you do with your life if you didn't, you know, if you could automate any aspect of it that you found to be drudgery, right? Right. So how do you, how do you extend your enjoyment of life? How do you flourish? How do you, how do you avoid repetitive tasks? Would that be a life that's desirable? It's hard to really imagine it, I guess. This is where this is where I kind of get get a little bit worried, and where I start. You quickly get into the into the spiral of like, all right, that's that's why and how we build machines that ultimately destroy the universe or destroy humans. Uh, because what you're going to do is you're going to build machines that basically anticipate your every need and desire and fulfill those hedonic goals. Right, so you've Which got some could devolve pretty quickly, right? And, super and quickly. And then all of a sudden, that, you know, because you've trained these machines to do everything for you, you can't do anything yourself anymore. 
What happens and, okay. in a couple of generations? You know, it's yeah. And oh, by the way, this machine is super good at figuring out what you're going to do and what you want, <laughs> right? And so when you come back to my 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 two points about intelligence of what it can do that really well that the, the reason why human beings are we think we're in charge is uh, produce food and all the other intendant basic life-sustaining elements, and then war or violence. Obviously, a lot of what we're going to be doing with these machines, when, when, when we make them able to interpret people's goal-directed behavior uh, and anticipate people's goal-directed behavior, is we're going to make them into war machines, either intentionally or unintentionally. Almost certainly it will be intentional at first, and then uh, it will spiral out of control. That's a bit of a dark... That's a bit of a dark forecast. <laughs> wow, there's, I mean, there's a lot of ways for the for the world to end. I mean, that's a. I, oh yeah, no, I'm a just science saying. fiction book in there somewhere. No, no, no. I know. I'm not saying that it will end that way. I'm just saying you could imagine how that would turn out that way very quickly. And when you start going down that, uh, that's where my mind always goes when it starts when we start going down the social piece, right? Which is like figuring out how people anticipating people's goal-directed behavior and desires, why you would do that, and what society is likely to do with it. Hmm. I mean, because think about who's funding a project like that. It's either going to be Google, what are they going to try to do? They're going to try to sell you ads, or it's going to be the military. So how do we get out of that? I mean, that's kind of what, from a practical perspective, what I would really like to do is figure out how can we make machines that actually help us in, in ways that we want them, that we really want them to help us, in like a going forward basis. I think a key point, a key part of that is, I think it just rests on the, what it is that we actually want. I think that is the, that is the hard question. I do feel like the part of machines improving enough so that they can, you know, they can fulfill our needs well enough is good, but I think human beings anticipating what human beings want. We have to be the ones that are deciding what, what it is that we want. We don't want to be stuck in a spiral of other machines figuring out what it is that we want and fulfilling those needs. And I want to be an, I want to be a conscious agent here and in, um, I want to feel as though it's under my control, I guess. Sure. But you know, we, it's not, I know it's not. Well, we, we've already got a couple of things where that's, we, we already have identified two, two places where this is already ha- happening and working quite well. One is video games, right? Video games in the sense that like, a really good video game is is to, is carefully meeting out rewards on a schedule and in a way that is maximally pleasure giving right and that's what sells the video game but it's you're sell more video games the better it does that so and it does they're doing they do pretty well so you could imagine you extend that you know obviously that's uh that's a world that that's been explored pretty pretty extensively in, in science fiction, etc. But yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good one. I mean, yeah, 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 absolutely. So I mean, so it's happening there. It's happening in video games, and it will happen more in better video games. And then you know, it's already happening as we say in commerce, as to your point exactly of of the recommendation engine, and then also just the ads that you see. So much of our brightest, best minds in artificial intelligence right now, a huge proportion of them are selling ads. 95%. Yeah, it's just uh, capitalism pays off pretty well. 
Yeah, and it's just in this very specific way, too. It's not like even building useful products that people buy. It's like selling the same crappy shit more efficiently. <laughs> yeah. What a fucking waste of time that is, man. Think about <sighs> I mean, think of how many really brilliant people are developing algorithms at Google, mostly to, to deliver ads to you at the right place at the right time so that you're most maximally likely to purchase at that moment. Well, I mean, in a way, maybe it's better that they're doing that than sort of fully advancing the, the evil possibilities for artificial intelligence. I mean, ads are bad, but they're not... Um, well, I mean, yeah, especially in what they're doing with them, it's essentially useless. I mean, you, not, not useless, sorry. Essentially um, neutral from a ethical perspective because they're just delivering them more efficiently. Right? They're not, like, even doing that much of content stuff yet. They're, they're just delivering the right place at the right time to the right person. I think it's like, maybe that's a good thing that all of the brightest minds are working on ads because I, it does delay the moment till the robo-apocalypse, I think, <laughs> at, least, at least by a couple of years. Right. I mean, it, well, yeah, exactly. Because as long as those folks have enough of their, like, avocado toast mm -hmm. and they are satisfied I do. By the way, just as a as a quick aside, I actually do enjoy avocado toast. I feel like it's it's a tasty combination. Avocado is good on anything, man. I I am not a hater of avocado in any way. I love avocado. I'll eat it on anything. Toast, yeah. Toast is okay. good. I, yeah. I yeah. The challenge with avocado toast is just when you have to pay eight dollars. Right. That's you're just like oh. Yeah, then it seems, seems sort of snobby. Yeah, then you're just like, okay, this is this is ridiculous. Eight dollar avocado toast. But yeah, it's a very easy thing to just take an I mean, avocado it, and put it on a piece of toast. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not a, I mean, there are a couple different recipes you can use. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's fundamentally just toast with avocado. With avocado, though. Right. Yeah. That's the key part. So the toast is a dollar, and the, the avocado is a dollar, and somehow the avocado toast is eight dollars. Well, that's another thing. This may actually be a useful thing, too, that uh, all of the wealth of Silicon Valley is going to the avocado industry and not necessarily towards the robopocalypse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that is good. It's, it's, it's a useful thing so that we keep these people occupied. And so what we need to do is engineer better avocado toast mm -hmm. that keeps all of these brilliant but essentially amoral minds <laughs> Occupied, and probably boats are in there somewhere too, right? Like, like if everyone had like a boat, a boat. Yeah, like I mean, think about it. If you had a boat, oh, like a yacht, like a, yeah, some, a yacht. somewhere to really put nice money into. Yeah, a really nice yacht, because it's San Francisco, right? So, and and like a place to put it. These guys, they're not going to think about the robo apocalypse for quite a while. They'll be fully occupied with their boats and their avocado toast, and they'll leave us alone. Well, maybe. That's what they really want. Maybe that's what I really want. Maybe that's why I'm thinking about it. Maybe you, if mean, I had a boat. you mean right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If oh. I had a boat and I was eating avocado toast and drinking like a margarita, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. You don't have some deeper um, – yeah, I think that maybe that's where, that's where we land is that our needs don't need to necessarily go much farther than that. Right. But, yeah, it's funny because it doesn't really work out like that, does it? Because you and I, if we wanted to right now, could be on a fucking boat eating avocado toast. 
Mm-hmm. We could be recording this podcast on a boat, eating avocado toast and drinking margaritas. Yes. But we're not. We're not. And everybody in the whole world could have a boat and avocado toast every single day. Well, maybe not avocado. <laughs> they might. They, they, yeah, it puts a lot of stress on the avocado. Yeah. Yeah. The avocado, it might be the limiting reagent there. Yeah. That's probably true. Well, I think there's going to be a, I mean, there's clearly going to be a, a push to make artificial avocado. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's the next level of that. Yeah. We need to be able well, to. Okay. So why are we, why is that not what we're doing right now? Yeah. To the point of just, I guess the, I mean, the bigger, so yeah, it's all couched in the sense of. So in this case, avocado toast just represents pure hedonism. Yeah, I mean, in, in a benign way, right? Like in like a in like a benign way, right? So it's just like nice, not something so crazy or ridiculous. We're it's not just, just a, plugged into our orgasmatron, right? Exactly, exactly. It's and it's something that you know we already can produce. Right? It's, it exists out there in the world. I guess it, it, the way I would say extend this out would be to say, why is it that we're not able as a society to do some basic stuff? Like, make sure that everybody has food that they can eat every single day and a place for them to be. And we've decided that some people, you know, get a big yacht and avocado toast and other people don't get any of that stuff. And, and then this future, is a thing. I mean, this is a political discussion. Now, I think um, this is a, because if you're asking me why I'm not doing that right now, it's a different story because it plugs into the, the pol- political question because. I'm not doing it right now because I can't afford it. All right, like I can, af- I can afford to do it today. So I'm not doing it today, not because I can't afford to do it today. I just couldn't mm-hmm. afford to do it every single day for the rest of my life. And if I was able to do that every single day for the rest of my life, it would be a significant, it would be a serious conversation about whether that would be what I would be doing. Just hang out, eating nice food, going for walks with my family and hanging out with my friends. Taking like, up hobbies. Um, yeah. Community. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's probably what I would try to do. I don't know if that would work out. Most people don't even get time to think about those kinds of questions. I mean, it's not something that comes up in a day-to-day conversation. You don't have, I mean, you know, your short-term goals mostly overrule your sort of long-term impression in a way. I mean, we're thinking about if, if you could be relieved of any sort of menial task, if you have artificial intelligence to do most of that stuff for you, well, who who today has the time to think about that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Um, right. That yeah, exactly. I mean, and that, so you're just projecting, just propelling yourself forward one step at a time towards in a disordered way. In the future, if you could have all your farmers be robots, mm-hmm. that is that very possible. plausible. That's very possible. possible. Very possible. And actually, we could do it today if we if we really had our shit together. We could do this in a very short period of time. No one would have to do anything a manual in, in the whole agricultural industry in, in not very long, including driving the food to the to the store. I've got to say, I think farming has probably become a less enjoyable way to spend your time these days, too. If you work on a gigantic farm where you're just dri- either driving around a machine or slaughtering animals en masse. Right. Or, I mean, if you look at, you know, I was just watching a video of, of like, some farming stuff, uh, picking celery, I think. And it's just like the humans were doing the picking, but then they were just tossing it all into this really big machine that was processing everything. And there's like, there's a lot of people really fast doing a very repetitive task of just, They're just doing the one thing that 
AI or robots are too expensive to do it. Exactly. Right. It's actually just less expensive to have them do it. That's Humans are just slightly cheaper robots because they're more purpose, uh, more all purpose for now. Yeah, for this particular task at for this moment. Task. Yeah, they're they're a little bit less expensive. And uh, so the question becomes: If we had that, why wouldn't we just all hang out and just do stuff that was like fun? I think because right? we're fidgety. I think it's basically human beings are fidgety and they don't. It's fidgety, but it's, I mean, if you think about this, the structure of, of, of it is that it, it fidgety to what end? I mean, today, now, it's still the case that economically some people are, are picking crops and need to, but there's still plenty of food. Why is it that some people don't have any? And, it, and it's because some people want to have all of it, and they're willing to use all of their resources to make sure that they have it and somebody else doesn't have it because they just want more of it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of like, to, in some sense, I think the, the fullest extent of, of intelligence in the sense that when we talk about people who are really intelligent, we always look at people who are successful. And when, when we, usually when we mean successful, a lot of times we'll look at something specialized, you know, like art or science or something. But at the end of the day, it's it's always part and parcel with socioeconomically successful, right? That is is fundamentally, I think, back to my original point of like production and violence being like the two big end goals, uh, end states of of what what ultimately intelligent general intelligence are, is. It's an interesting proposal. Just a thought. Just a thought. Not not fully fully worked out. Well, clearly you need to read more Ayn Rand because um, obviously uh, robber barons are the the economic engine that drives our society. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. There. That. So then, yeah. It's just in terms of like, what do you want from the world? I think that's that's where things get complicated. So much of it it becomes relativistic. I mean, I think the fidgetiness, the fidgetiness uh, you're mentioning also kind of comes down to that a little bit. Like I was saying, like, you know, I can't afford to, like, eat avocado toast and hang out on my big yacht. But I could. I probably have enough wealth to, like, eat rice and beans every day and not have to work ever again. Mm -hmm. You could get by on your basic needs for sure if you feel as though that having that extra surplus of time is worth it. I think a few themes there. I mean, one is, is goals. You know, what do we want the machines to do? What are we, what are we impressed by that they can do? And then what are machines good at and not good at? What does that tell us about the nature of, of our brains? We didn't get into that as much, I guess. Our brains. That would stuff. be a nice thing to think about. Yeah. What does it tell us? Cause I think that's, that's a real key issue that some of the stuff is bringing surprising results to is how much it's changing how we think of our own intelligence, how how we can understand human intelligence better. And apart from just the chess playing examples, I think there are more fundamental ways in which we can understand shortcomings of human intelligence and advantages of human intelligence through all of this work. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That was what gra I mean, that's what got me interested in this topic in the first place. My original um, interest in the topic, I mean, this is like, Probably the thing in the world that I'm the most interested in 
how we use technology to understand the brain and how we use the brain to understand technology. I mean, that's like when I started. Yeah, exactly. When I started in neuroscience, like that was the the reason why I got into it. I wanted to build a machine that exactly did this. Exactly. I wanted to build a machine that was like a brain. I thought it would be cool because it would be uh, a great model to understand the brain. We could do Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff with it in terms of uh, understanding, but also maybe even curing diseases. And then uh, we could also potentially build some useful tools out of it. I didn't even at that time I wasn't even thinking about uploading myself. I I just the comment that I would make too is that one of the really interesting questions in there is whether or not if you made a machine that thought like a human, would we really understand thinking any better? And I think one of the things that neural networks have demonstrated is that not necessarily that if we understood every single neuron in our brain and how it connects to every other single neuron in our brain. And if we could watch it in real time and get perfect imaging, we still wouldn't fully understand how thinking and consciousness and all of that good stuff comes about. We don't get an understanding what sorts of things can we understand from it and what sorts of things can't we understand from it. And I think a lot of these neural network models demonstrate that you can have a really powerful way to solve problems and recognize patterns that you essentially don't understand exactly what it's recognizing or how it's recognizing in the first place. That's a big characteristic of deep learning networks where you don't, as a human being, looking at the results of the learning process that the the algorithm that the network went through, you can't actually make sense out of the representations you can infer that has somehow developed representations at different levels mm-hmm. throughout the network, but you can't really make sense out of it. It doesn't really give you that intuition about the relationship. So for example, if you want to use the algorithm to, to teach you about the relationship between different variables, it doesn't really do that very well unless you right. explicitly set it up to do that. But you know, if you're, if you're interested in, in like the steps that it's going through, it doesn't really give you a lot of intuition into that. It is, it is uh, very much so a black box. And if you made it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and made it more and more and more thinking like a human, it seems like you would actually probably not be getting closer and closer and closer and closer <laughs> to having an intuition about the, the different steps, maybe maybe farther away. I, I think that is one thing that is becoming more clear is that you you don't necessarily understand everything from being able to to build it. Because right. it's not it's not quite so algorithmic and it's not quite so it's not quite so straightforward as that. It, the more the more powerful you get, the less explanatory power you may have. Yeah, one of the things that I was wanted to bring up in this conversation was this comment by Crick, uh, talking about on page twenty as Crick, nineteen eighty nine, famously pointed out, mm-hmm. back propagation seems to require that information be transmitted backward along the axon which does not fit with realistic models of neural function. I was a little confused by that. I mean, the relationship of the way that the neural network machine learning algorithm is doing something and the way that the the actual neural network, the neurons are doing something, obviously it's always a little bit of an analogy, right? It's not that they're actually doing it the same way. And I always assumed that the analogy with backpropagation was just like feedback Mm -hmm. uh, connections, not that, that it was up and down the same 
neuron, that the neuron was the unit there. So there are some neurons that are feed forward and then some neurons that are feedback. Right, exactly. I mean, if you, if you even look at like visual system, for example, like a huge proportion of the inputs to the, you know, the LGN are feedback from V1, for example. And that was yeah, all, like all 90% or something, yeah. Yeah, we've always thought about that <laughs> stage of processing as being essentially like a filter, you know, it's just like a very straightforward, dumb filter. But actually, a huge proportion of, of the input is actually feedback. So backpropagation to me does not seem to be a problem from a neural perspective. It seems like that's actually, like, critical. So I was a little confused as to why they, they, they would suggest that that was even a problem for, for the analogy, right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. It's a great article, too. 1989, uh, Crick. The recent excitement about neural networks. You can almost hear the disdain in, in the, the title. Of the this is clear. Yeah, like this is clearly cyclical. This is, it's like um, 3D, like 3D glasses or something. Yeah. People get into for a while and then. Well, that's a whole related, related topic, which is the uh, virtual reality. I, I would be interested in that, too. Yeah, well, that'll be another day. Let's get into, let's let's do that one on another. Okay, another, another episode.